have you ever been entrusted with something valuable? Perhaps you've been given a family heirloom passed down for generations to care for and pass on. Perhaps sometime you've been dog-sitting, or even more, even more nerve-wracking, you've been charged with taking care of somebody's beloved plants. <laughs> you know how much they love those ferns and cactuses and flowers. So you take great care and attention to ensure they get the perfect amount of sunlight and water. I remember shortly before Kate and I got married, I started driving her car around D.C. But it wasn't really her car. It was her parents' car. I remember thinking as I began to drive it more regularly, I really hope I don't wreck this thing. I better be really careful with it. You know, it was only after that, of course, that I realized what they cared most about was not how I treated the car but how I treated their daughter. Because they love her, they care deeply about how I treated her. The car, they could get another. They couldn't get another daughter. This morning in today's passage in Mark's gospel, we see how Jesus instructs the 12 apostles how they are to care for and lead the Christian community. How they are to lead Jesus' followers. Because Jesus loves his people, because he died to win them and save them, he cares deeply about how the apostles and Christian leaders are to care for his followers. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 14 to 50 this morning. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Over the past nine chapters, Jesus has healed and taught, and worked miracles. He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders. He's shown incredible mercy to the miserable. Yet many remain confused about his identity and mission. Some thought he was an impressive prophet. Others, a healer on demand. Uh, the disciples themselves, Jesus' hand-picked leaders, have been spiritually blind. Yet last week we saw in a climactic revelation, Jesus display himself as the Christ, the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man who's come to take up his cross and deny himself and who calls his followers to do the same. He's the Son of God to whom we should listen. And so we arrive at our passage this morning. Our sermon title is Leading Jesus' Followers. What we're going to find is that I think Jesus is honing in on the apostles and how they are to lead but of course, these lessons apply to all Christians. So there's this kind of, I think he's, he's focusing on the apostles in their role as apostles, as leaders. But of course, these lessons apply to all of us as followers of Jesus. So the main point of our passage is simply this. Jesus calls the apostles, Christian leaders, and all his followers to believe in him and pursue a cross-shaped ministry. Jesus calls the apostles, Christian leaders, and all his followers to believe in him and pursue a cross-shaped ministry. So read along with me, beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? 
And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often casts him into fire and to water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 14 to 29 entitled, Remember Prayer. Remember Prayer. 
So we know that this passage begins as Peter and James and John and Jesus are descending the mountain of transfiguration, and they find the rest of the disciples embroiled in an argument with the scribes. A crowd has swelled, and so Jesus asks in verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? You see the, the father's heartbreaking breaking reply there in verses 17 and 18. His son has a demon. In Matthew 17, which is Matthew's parallel account of this, uh, we note that the boy is uh, diagnosed as having both, in Matthew 17, a demon and epilepsy. It seems that this boy's sad medical condition, epilepsy, was used as a cover, perhaps, by this demon for spiritual and physical attacks. And so the father has apparently heard about Jesus' reputation as an exorcist. That's why he's brought his son to Jesus. But only the disciples were available. And the problem, therefore, as verse 18 concludes, is that I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were, literally, they were not strong enough. They weren't strong enough. In what ways were they not strong enough? Well, Jesus answers that for us in verse 19. Look there. Addressing the disciples and the father and the scribe and the, just the crowd in general, he laments, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You see the problem there at the beginning of verse 19. O faithless generation, unbelieving, untrusting, that was what the, the crowd and the disciples and the Father were weak in. Uh, despite ample evidence of Christ's goodness and glory, his compassion and his ability, his mercy and his might, still this generation had not come to trust in Jesus. It wasn't for lack of evidence, but it was their own hard hearts. So the boy is brought to Jesus there in verse 20. The Father reiterates his question at the end of verse 22. Look there. After recounting the horrible effects of this demon, he states in desperation, but if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, what a glorious and humble response from the father. Right, Jesus has just accused the, the whole crowd, the whole generation, of being faithless. Then the man, you know, he seems to produce some faith when he asks Jesus for help. He, he seems to be demonstrating more faith than others. But then Jesus ups the ante, doesn't he? He rebukes the man for his apparent doubt. And how does the man respond? So often when we are rebuked, right, we get defensive. So often we don't admit when we're wrong. But this man says, you're right. I believe, but also help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, I believe in your power and your strength. I believe that you are able. And I believe in your compassion. I believe that your heart goes out and you desire, you long to show mercy to the afflicted. I believe and yet help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, my faith is tinged with doubt. And I don't want it to stay that way. 
I want to get rid of my reluctance. I want to trust you more. But here's the thing, right? The man can't produce it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked Jesus for help. He asks Jesus to do what he himself cannot do. He's not saying, I believe, okay, I'm going to conjure up more belief now. He's saying, I believe and I need you to produce it in me. You, Jesus, help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, do you not live here? Is this not your experience of faith mixed with doubt, even on our best days? When we face trials in this life, we can relate to this man. We believe God's word, but we do so falteringly, inconsistently. We trust Jesus today, but not tomorrow. We trust Jesus today in this particular situation, but not this other situation today. We aren't as fully and wholeheartedly trusting in him as we would like. And so the solution isn't to fix ourselves, to fix our faith before we come to Jesus. You know, as if he's a harsh taskmaster, nitpicking and demanding. He's not like that at all. We don't need to fix ourselves before we come to Christ. But as we sang earlier, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. We come in our imperfection asking Jesus to change us. And and so, brothers and sisters, praise God that even as we desire a stronger faith, a more consistent trust in the Lord, uh, praise God that we aren't saved by the strength of our faith, but by its object. Do you know what I mean by that? I might have really, really strong confidence that there's a chair behind me, that if if I just lean back, I'll sit and it'll catch me. And I'm really confident that there's a chair. Unfortunately, that strong confidence in faith would do me no good as I toppled to the ground. Yet say you came in here this morning, nervous and trepidatious that these chairs that you're sitting in were all unstable. They'd been tampered with, perhaps. You were halting and doubting as to whether or not these chairs could hold you. And so, with much fear and trembling, you tested it with your hand, and then you slowly lowered yourself down. You had perhaps a friend hold you up a little bit. Would the chair hold you? Well, yes. Because you are supported not by the strength of your faith, but by the object of your faith. This supposed chair, don't put your faith in that. Those chairs, those are reliable chairs. Beloved, when you are tempted to doubt God's goodness and plan, pray this. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. We're not saved by how strong our faith is, but by the object, how reliable it is. And Jesus is dependable. And so notice the progression of this man. Initially, he comes to Jesus looking for healing. So he requested in verse 22, have compassion on us and help us. So he's looking for healing. But you notice what he says in verse 24? Help my unbelief. He's come to realize that his biggest problem is not health. 
but rather faith. My brothers and sisters, I know that many of you are facing health challenges of various severity. Uh, For others, like this father, it's not your own health that is in doubt, but the health of one that you love. Notice that as Jesus does heal this boy and show compassion, uh, physical health does matter. Yet our biggest need is not perfect or improved health. It is, as the Father said, help my unbelief. That is what we need help with. Now, when Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes, he isn't talking about your ability to grow to seven feet tall and win an NBA championship if you just believe. His point is that the limiting factor in this situation isn't my power. It's your trust. And so Jesus displays that strength and compassion and the evidence of the father's faith when he casts the demons, the demon out. He shows that this man's faith was well-placed. You see the result there in verses 26 and 27. It came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most said of him, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and literally resurrected him, and he arose. In this, we see the foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection, just what he had been predicting to the disciples. He here enacted and displayed this resurrection life in this young boy. And so our scene closes in verses 28 and 29. Uh, You notice that Jesus is now speaking specifically and privately to the apostles in a house. They say, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see, prayer produces spiritual strength. Prayer produces spiritual strength, and it's often the appointed means by which God works his sovereign ends. It's the the means that God intends to use to accomplish what he wants accomplished. But when Jesus said that anything is possible for the one who believes, is he contradicting himself when he now concludes with his disciples that this demon was only able or possible, um, it's the same word as earlier, to be cast out with prayer? Like, which is it? Do you need faith or do you need prayer? Trust you see where this is going. It's both. Because what is prayer? But faith in action. When we pray, we call out to God to act in ways that we are not able because he is able. We recognize our own limitations and his limitlessness. In prayer, we gain divine strength to do what we in our weak flesh are totally unable to do. So, brothers and sisters, do you pray? It's been said that prayerlessness is practical atheism. It's acting as if God doesn't exist. Prayer and faith have this this wonderful snowball effect. Such that the more you pray, the greater your faith. And the greater your faith, the more you pray. The more you pray, the greater your faith. And it just is this happy snowballing effect. 
brothers and sisters, if this is a struggle for you, as I trust it is for probably almost every Christian at some time, uh, let me encourage you to, to grab another member and, and say, hey, I want to grow in this area. Can, can we meet up to pray together and encourage one another? It's because prayer is faith in action and prayer is powerful that we as a church are committed to prayer. Okay, so commenting on prayer in the church, the 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon wrote, this just like totally gripped me when I was on paternity leave. I was like, this is amazing. So check it out. This is one of those British pastors we were thanking God for. Spurgeon writes, the prayer meeting must be maintained at all cost. The communion of the church with God must never be broken. If you visit a factory, you may see thousands of wheels revolving and a host of hands employed. It is a wonderful sight. He's writing in like the late 19th century. Where is the power that keeps all this running? Look at that slated shed. Come into this grimy place, smelling of oil. What is it? It is the engine house. You do not think much of it, but that is the center of power. If you stop that engine, every wheel will stand still. Some good people say, I am not going out tonight. It is only a prayer meeting. Just so. It is only the engine, but that is everything. Go on board a great ocean steamer bound for New York. You say, I have been in the saloon. I have seen the wonderful luxuries provided for the passengers. It is a marvelous vessel. Did you look at her engines? What? Go down that ladder. I saw some black fellows below stoking great fires, but I did not care for that. Talk not so. If it were not for those sooty stokers, the grand saloon and the fine decks would be of no use. Prayer is the engine of the church. It supplies the force. Trinity Church of Bedford, without prayer, all our preaching, all our evangelizing, all our discipling, all our acts of mercy, all of that will lack spiritual strength and power. So join us tonight at 5 p.m. as we pray. And so as we conclude this first and longest of points, Notice that Jesus addresses the prayerlessness, not, not just of his followers generally, but specifically with these 12 apostles, these 12 leaders, these men who were appointed to lead in just a short time. Again, of course, all Christians should pray, but there is a special burden on the leaders of God's people to pray. Moses prayed for the congregation of Israel. Joshua prayed. David prayed. Daniel prayed, Paul prayed, Jesus prayed for us. Uh, so Trinity Church of Bedford, pray for me and for any other elders the Lord raises up. Uh, pray that your leaders in this church would be just as needy and just as dependent as this father is. Uh, pray that we would remember prayer. Let's turn now to our second point in verses 30 to 35 entitled, Reject Pride. First one was remember prayer. Second one, reject pride. Jesus and his 12 apostles continue their trek southward towards Jerusalem through Galilee. And in verse 30, Jesus specifically predicts his suffering and death and resurrection. As we saw last week, Jesus began to plainly speak of these things once the disciples understood that he was the Christ, the anointed king of God and king of Israel. Yet how do they respond? Do they get the message? And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
to those who are soon to be called to lead God's people and called to follow in Jesus' example of laying down their lives for the good and benefit of others, the disciples have totally misunderstood what leadership in God's kingdom is about. And so Jesus clarifies what Christian discipleship generally and Christ-like leadership specifically is there in verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see, by choosing these 12 apostles, the Lord Jesus had indeed chosen them to be first, to be preeminent amongst his followers. They massively misunderstood what that required of them. In Christ's kingdom, being first is not about lording your authority over others. It's not about using this leadership position to display and prove your greatness. It's about serving others. Just like Jesus did when he went to the cross to die for our sins. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of competition we should all be striving for. To be first in service in the church and in our families and in our jobs. Uh, We should seek to serve others, uh, perhaps especially in thankless behind-the-scenes ways. This is like a church plant gives you plenty of opportunity to do. This is what Jesus was calling all his followers to, and it's especially his calling on Christian leaders, whether apostles or pastors or whomever. If you desire to lead in Christ's kingdom, you must be willing, and more than willing, you must desire to serve others. Uh, Husbands, God has not placed you as head of your household to lord it over your wife and kids. He's not placed you there because you're necessarily any smarter or more capable. He's put you there so that you can reflect Christ's sacrificial and servant-hearted love for those under your charge. So Trinity Church of Bedford, pray for me. Pray that I would be humble in my leadership. Pray that I would be quick to serve others, not doing so begrudgingly, but joyfully in imitation of the Savior. That's number two, reject pride. Let's turn to our third point in verses 36 and 37. Receive the lowly. Receive the lowly. Jesus wants these 12 leaders, these apostles, to display humility. And so what's the natural fruit of that? Well, verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. In short, once the disciples have personally rejected pride, it's only fitting that they should receive the lowly. So in these two verses, Jesus is not commending the disciples to to be like a child, but rather to receive such ones as this child in Jesus' name. So in ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, children were mainly viewed as nuisances. And so Jesus' point is that this person who's low in the societal totem pole, you should receive them on account of my name. That is because you share in common my name. Don't despise the lowly, but receive them because the stakes are high. Right? The end of verse 37 says that if you receive one of these lowly followers of Jesus, it's as if you've received Jesus himself. And of course, Jesus doesn't come on his own authority. He comes to represent God 
God himself. So, brothers and sisters, how are you doing in your affection and love for all the saints? I trust you know what I mean by that. As sinners, we can show up to church on Sunday and look around and say, where are my friends? Where are the cool people or the respectable people? Where are the people who seem important and capable? And yet, of course, such thinking is the opposite of the gospel. Praise God Jesus didn't think that way. Because none of us are in that category. Friends, it's one of the evidences that you have rejected pride that you receive the lowly. As Paul says in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now again, Jesus is talking directly, specifically to the apostles. He's not talking about the crowds. And so I think he's especially concerned that they implement uh, this receiving the lowly vision amongst his followers. That is, he, he wants to make sure that those who are first, those who are leading, show the same kind of condescending love that he himself has shown. I pray for us. Pray for me. Pray that we as a church would embody this kind of vision. Fourth, in verses 38 to 41, fourth point is relish unity. Relish unity. Continuing the same private instruction and conversation, John says in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. There's the problem there at the end of verse 38. Throughout the gospel, throughout Mark, Jesus is going out saying, follow me. And the disciples, they get, they get upset because this other minister, it's not, oh, Jesus, we were upset because he wasn't following you. No, he was in your name. They're upset because he wasn't following us. We're your hand-picked apostles. And so Jesus responds by rebuking John for such a proud and narrow view of the kingdom of God. When Jesus says in verse 39, don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In verse 41, Jesus shows the importance of loving other Christians. He says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. That is, if you're a Christian who bears the name of Christ and another Christian does a good deed for you because you're a Christian, on the last day, God will reward such behavior. Uh, of course, Christians should love and serve all people, right? Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, old, young, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Oh, we should love everyone. But you should especially love your family, right? You should have a special love and regard for those who bear the name of Trophy, Debon, Eob, because you share the name. Well, so it is with the church. The church is our family, where we share the name of Christ, and we belong to him. Jesus is telling the apostles and all Christians that there should be a special regard and love and concern for those who bear the name of Christ, even when they're not from your particular tribe or tradition. So how do we try to relish this unity here at Trinity? 
Well, I think one of the most regular ways we do it is what happened a few minutes ago through the pastoral prayer. I wonder if you've noticed every week we make it a point to pray for other gospel preaching churches in the area. We also make it a point to pray for, for the two churches, make sure one of them's a non-Baptist church. So just FYI, we're a Baptist church. Some people might not know that. We want to be really clear that we care about Jesus's kingdom more than our little fiefdom. We care about the gospel going out. If it happens to be here, praise God. We want to display this kind of unity that Jesus is calling for here. We want to show that Christ's kingdom is a lot deeper and wider and more solid than any particular divisions we might have with other faithful, evangelical, Presbyterian, or Anglican, or Lutheran, or Congregation, or Pentecostal, or Bible churches. I I try to relish unity by attending a monthly pastor's gathering with about eight or nine different denominations led by evangelical pastors. Uh, Again, you'll note that a lot of the books we hand out on Sunday night are not from Baptists. We don't think we've cornered the market on following Jesus. So we should relish unity. Let's turn now to our final section in verses 42 to 50, entitled, Remove Sin-Stoking Scandalizers. Remove Sin-Stoking Scandalizers. There are a couple of subpoints here. So, for example, verse 42 stands a bit on its own. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to be scandalized or to sin, uh, it, it's referring to sinning in such a way as to fall away from the faith. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What's Jesus getting at? Well, the key to understanding this verse is to remember that Jesus has not interrupted his leadership talk with the 12 apostles. He's addressing a particular concern that he has about them and their eschewing of a cross-shaped ministry. And so, so what is the significance of the apostles as the audience to this particular injunction? Well, it's that he's addressing false teaching. He's warning against false teachers. Simply put, if you are called to be a leader of Jesus' followers and you lead them to stumble away from the faith, it would be better for you to be drowned in a lake of water than to be thrown eternally into the lake of fire. If you are called to be a leader of Jesus' followers, and you are going to lead them into spiritual ruin and sin, it would be better for you to be drowned in a lake of water lest you burn eternally in the lake of fire. Turning to Church of Bedford, that truth takes my breath away. It kept me awake two nights ago. Of course, as Christians, we all need to be aware of how our behavior, how our actions might be leading other Christians to sin. Whether in dating or parenting or in the church, we never want to condone or encourage sin. And yet, this verse is especially directed to Christian teachers or leaders. So these little ones isn't a reference to literal children, but you notice there it's these little ones who believe in me. 
So if you're a teacher or leader or in some high position among God's people, don't take lightly your charge over any supposed little sheep. They may seem insignificant to you, but they are blood-bought. Jesus delights in them. Who are you to cause them to fall away? To the brothers in this room who aspire to the office of pastoral ministry, and I hope there are many, take this warning to heart. To lead Jesus' followers is a weighty thing. They're his followers, not yours, not mine. Care for them well. And friends, this means that on judgment day, a lot of the so-called pastors and preachers and teachers of today are going to be in for an awful, damning, hellish awakening. For those who say that God condones sin such that it leads people away from Christ, such a judgment can almost not be imagined. So Trinity Church of Bedford, pray for me and for any other elders the Lord raises up here. As Paul told the young pastor Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The next subpoint is in verses 43 to 48, where, where Jesus turns to a different scenario amongst his followers. Verse 43 is a representative. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, if it scandalizes you, if it causes you to sin in egregious, falling away from the faith ways, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Now, in Matthew 5, Jesus uses this metaphor to teach the radical steps that his followers must go to fight sin in their own lives. He's talking about adultery and lust, and his point is basically, do whatever it takes to stop yourself from sinning. Get rid of your iPhone, stop going to certain bars, do whatever it takes. And that principle applies to our passage as well. But I don't think that's the main thing that Jesus is actually doing here. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus uses that same analogy. So Matthew 5, he's talking individually, personally, cut off sinful tendencies and opportunities. But then in Matthew 18, he uses this same analogy in his chapter where he's dealing with relationships in the church, which is actually what Mark 9 has all been about here, isn't it? Humbly serving others in the community of faith, receiving the lowly brother or sister, showing unity in Christ, not leading other Christians to fall away. So in verses 43 to 48, what exactly is Jesus getting at? Well, it's what our scripture reading was about earlier from 1 Corinthians 5. It's about church discipline. In the New Testament, the church is regularly called the body, the body of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul explicitly talks about different Christians in a local church as members of one body. You got the hand, you got the foot, the eye, the ear. So the point that Jesus is making is the same one that Paul was making. To use the language of 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So remove the evil person from your midst. Or to use Jesus' language here, if one of your members, if your hand or your foot or your eye is causing you to sin, cut it off. 
remove it from the body of Christ. This process, sometimes called church discipline or excommunication, uh, is also what we read about in our historic catechism in the 1500s. It's when someone who bears the name of Christ and Christian engages in serious, outward, unrepentant sin that is in direct contradiction to his or her profession of faith. And thus the church removes this individual from membership. He or she is cut off from the body. Excommunication, church discipline, isn't to embarrass people, and it certainly doesn't remove salvation, as if we had the power to do that. Rather, it is a congregation, the the body of Christ, stating of a member, we can no longer regard you as part of the body because of your unrepentant sin, because it is inconsistent with your profession of faith. If you want to talk about this more, please come talk to me after service. I'd love to, to chat more. Uh, You might also check out Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is really clear on this topic. Uh, Let's notice two last things before we conclude. First, notice how high the stakes are in this. On the one hand, for those individuals and churches who do not condone sin, uh, there is life, verses 43 and 45. In the kingdom of God, verse 47. This is the joyful expectation of all who trust in Christ and follow him and put sin to death. But the opposite, for those who side with their sin rather than siding with Christ, well, the expectation is hell, the unquenchable fire, verse 43, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, verse 48. In short, it's judgment, eternal conscious torment is what awaits all those who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus and to trust in his blood. As one 19th century pastor puts it, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. That's how high the stakes are that we not condone sin in our own individual lives and amongst us as a body here, as a church. And so our passage concludes with verses 49 and 50. They're a bit enigmatic, actually. You know, they read, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's going on here? I think that last line summarizes what Jesus is getting at. He wants his followers to be at peace with one another because such peace and harmony and unity and humility and purity is what makes their life so distinct, so salty, so different. Brothers and sisters, this whole time Jesus has been talking about Christian leaders and the Christian community more broadly How should we relate to one another? Well, we should emulate Christ and his cruciform ministry, his cross-shaped ministry. We should follow his example. For consider how Christ displayed such great faith and prayer in his own life and ministry. He ever trusted his heavenly father, no matter how dark the road. He rejected pride as he willingly went to the cross and suffered for our debt of sin. He received the lowly, as we are all his weak and needy people. None of us were strong and impressive. He came not to divide his followers, but to unite them under his glorious banner. And he, the righteous and innocent one, well, he willingly chose to be cut off from the land of the living. The Lord Jesus died on the cross, suffered the wrath of God, the very hell that we deserve, 
not for his own sinning, but for us, dying in our place as our substitute and as our Savior. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do so today. Brother or sister in Christ, I hope you find great encouragement here. Great encouragement in how to pray for me, how to pray for us. Great encouragement to believe the Lord Jesus. Ask him for help in your unbelief, for we have a great example to follow. Whether as under shepherds or as sheep, we all look to the great shepherd as our example and savior. May God give us grace to be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you sent your son in your great love. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your great humility and coming down for our salvation. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd give us all the gift of faith. If there are any here who do not believe, we pray that you would help their unbelief. Help us to love one another. Help us to count each other as more significant than ourselves, to live in such unity that glorifies you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to, conc- friends, we're going to conclude our service now by singing, Oh, How Good It Is. Uh, this song is a meditation on how good it is when we do live in peace and harmony in the church. So let's stand together and sing on page 15, Oh, How Good It Is. <laughs>